Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just wanted to say, if you like what we're doing, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you subscribe, you'll get access to exclusives, including guests, and we'll be polling patrons and generally soliciting you for ways to improve the pod. So if you get a chance, please subscribe and help Podside Picnic do more and better work. Thanks so much. Hi everyone, welcome to Podside Picnic. Today's episode is about Captain Marvel. If you, oh, I don't know, live in a cave, uh, you might not be aware that that's the uh, best-selling Marvel movie going on right now. So um, I personally have quite a background with Captain Marvel because I was I was reading the comics when I was small. I actually don't know where Connor was with that, but why don't we get right into it? Um, my recommendation is expect some spoilers on this. So it might be a good idea if you've seen the movie, but hey, we're happy to spoil it for you if it doesn't bother you. So uh, Connor, you've called this movie flavorless. What does that mean? Yeah, so I went to see this last night. Uh relatively empty theater and and I got home I immediately tweeted that was flavorless it was like an HR flunky who's desperate to be liked and is very awkward about it and I guess I guess what I mean is this is a movie that was written to have a charm and now I want to preface this by saying everyone if you're super familiar with Marvel movies you're probably gonna be mad at what I'm about to say (laughs) because I have not seen enough of them to have a good sense of where this fits in the broader world. I do have a favorite relatively recent Marvel movie, and that is Thor Ragnarok, which is a movie that is on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, and it is genuinely charming, and it's one of the Marvel movies, one of the superhero movies broadly that has sort of the strongest directorial voice. Uh, that guy's name I'm going to mispronounce, Waika, uh, oh gosh, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. He's a, New Ze- he's a New Zealander who's a very good comic director, <laughs> Anyway, Thor Ragnarok is kind of the thing that I found myself comparing this movie to because this movie is trying really hard to be charming, and it brings in Samuel L. Jackson to be the main vehicle of that. And there's a reason that Samuel L. Jackson can be in any movie he wants to be. That's because he brings a particular kind of Riley comic energy very, very well uh, into any situation. And he did that well in this movie with a, you know, when I say it has a limited script, when I say it's a relatively boilerplate story... I think we all know what I mean just because Marvel movies, even separate from superhero movies, are their own genre. It's it's basically its own sector of the entire narrative arts world that is huge and is almost cordoned off from the rest of everything else, but that we know looms over uh, storytelling as a whole. But I think you have some sense of what I mean. But like you have you have Samuel L. Jackson trying really hard to be funny in this world that is an homage to 90s culture that is full of references that is set because this is set in like the mid 90s and you have Brie Larson is supposed to be the like uh kind of colder more severe but also wry kind of badass and they're the main their their pairing is the main force driving this and it's really unfortunate because I feel like Brie Larson I'm gonna give her the benefit of the doubt here and say that she just felt the need to kind of make the same severe facial expression throughout the whole thing 
and and uh so you're you're suggesting she smile more oh god <laughs> uh-oh i'm canceled already we're like we're, we're three minutes into this and i've already been canceled okay we're gonna get this is great that's a great point pete because we're gonna get to okay i'm rambling a little bit here but obviously the big conversation around captain marvel has been that this movie has been promoted as being a paragon of feminism uh, feminism in a blockbuster Marvel movie, and I can't. And and part of that has been the I would say probably semi-intentional provocation of all of the anti-just SJW, mostly male people out there who like hated the Last Jedi and are going to get inherently mad at any movies that's like this is a feminist, an iconic feminist movie. And when I say flavorless, I, I you know I started talking about the humor and how I didn't think it landed and how there wasn't real chemistry between Samuel L. Jackson and Brie Larson. And I felt bad for everyone involved, and I wanted the Thor Ragnarok crew to come in. That's one way of saying it. Another way is just to say this movie was promoted very explicitly as being a a feminist story of sorts about strong female characters. And I expected thus. For instance, if you have you take Black Panther, um, Black Panther was promoted as doing something new with racial identity in the context of these blockbuster Marvel movies. And I would say that it did, right? I would say that it, it embraced the aesthetics of Afrofuturism. It did do something different. And it's, it's a topic of much debate on left Twitter, but I thought it was at least distinctive within that context. This movie was distinctive in absolutely no way. That's what I mean by flavorless. There was okay. nothing new about, like if, if you're trying to make Peru this as a feminist movie, uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm the right person to adjudicate what that means. What I will say is that there was nothing at all fresh about it that would lead me to say this is an advancement for depictions of women even in this narrow genre well that's my spiel i'm yeah. sorry I, I i just i always get worked up about this stuff there's a there's a there's an a, american cultural artifact that we hear again and again that is so fundamentally obviously not true and that's the idea that you can somehow buy your identity at the store and the whole idea of this being a feminist film is gibberish to me because what it is, it is a packaged product that has been market tested and focused at us. And I cannot imagine the situation where this movie is going to move the cause of women's rights in any direction whatsoever because that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to make me shell out 11 bucks. I think that's a very fair and important point. I'm I'm even, I'm trying to engage with it even at the level just of storytelling on screen and I'm stripping away the cynicism of the way this is marketed. I'm also stripping away something we'll get to, which is that this was a very much a synergistic marketing promotion with the United States Air Force, yes. which people have had a lot to say about. And we'll get to that. But what I want to say is, is being totally fair to this. It's like I go into this and I'm told that it's going to be an advancement in feminist storytelling in this. Again, we're talking about a very precise genre. That genre is Marvel movies themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And even in that context, like nothing – actually, the movie that I kept thinking about uh, was a movie that came out in the time period this was set in, the 90s, that actually was arguably for its time period a step forward, um, like it or not, a step forward for kind of – women in action roles of a certain kind. And that was G.I. Jane, which is about, you know, sort of 20 years ago, uh, Demi Moore training to be a Navy SEAL. Huh. And I would say that this movie 20 years later, which, again, Carol Danvers, Captain Marvel, has kind of multiple identities in this movie, but her kind of initial Earth identity is as a fighter pilot in the Air Force. There's a lot of Top Gun homage, uh, very much 90s military 
iconography going on. And so it reminded me of a Top Gun. It reminded me of G.I. Jane. And I just didn't think, I thought that was almost like a step back past G.I. Jane. Because, like, you had these flashbacks where she's, like, being told she's too weak and she'll never fly and men are being misogynistic to her. And, like, we get it. Fine. All right. She's had to face adversity for being a woman in the military in these settings. It just felt very flimsy. It felt almost like you were importing stock footage from other movies. That's, it's just like, man, you're not, this movie didn't, didn't really make any attempt whatsoever to push us any farther than we've already been 20, 25 years ago on, again, the narrow issue of women in big budget action movies, which is a very narrow, like, cultural corner for feminism. I'm sorry, I'm rambling again, Pete. Or, I, uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's about time for to be to rejoinder. Um, I liked it. I mean, I didn't, I didn't like it much, and I certainly don't think it advanced anybody's cause of anything. But it's like, like imagine you go to the store and all they have in the breakfast cereal aisle are different flavors of oatmeal. This movie would be one of my favorite flavors of oatmeal. Like, it's very predictable. It reinforces things that I want a movie to reinforce. There's violence, but not so much that it makes me uncomfortable. And it ties back to my childhood because I grew up reading about the scrolls fighting the Fantastic Four because I always stole my brother's comic books. So, like, I have that connection to it. But, I mean... It's is it a fun movie? For me it was. Is it a meaningful movie? Absolutely not. Like in terms of any larger use beyond entertaining me for almost exactly 2 hours, it is useless. Yeah, so I want you to expand on that and I guess I would prompt you by saying um you know, you've said we're not really watching the same movie cuz in the time period that this was set, I guess this was like mid to late 90s. Um I was a small child in elementary school, and you were kind of, you were a little yeah, bit younger. Your age. <laughs> yeah, you were probably a few years right around the age that I am now. Uh, you were in your yep. 20s. So we weren't watching the same movie. So, I mean, how does that figure into it? Well, I mean, I think that's important because, like, as I'm watching this film, um, it takes place, they they dropped the date at one point, I, and I was, I was, laser looking for it as soon as the product placed a blockbuster in the middle of the thing. Um, 1995 was when this movie occurred. So I was was five years old, folks. Yeah. (laughs) I was 25 years old at that point. And so like watching things like um, the cars, I remember having a car from that, that era. Um, The, the food, the music, all of it was very was very comforting in a non uh, non challenging way. I mean, it was very clear that one of the purposes of this film was to make Gen Xers relax, and it certainly did that. Like, I enjoyed the atmosphere. It was like watching a movie from the mid nineties for me, and I mean, that's not nothing. But I think if you were uh, younger at the time or even older at the time, that connection wouldn't have been important or at least as important. And so one of the things that draws me to this movie is that it is comfort food. 
Like it, it get, it ties me back to a spot where I was young and powerful and more into comic books than I am now. And if you're going to get me interested into a comic movie, that's a good way to do it. That's interesting. So we've reached this point, and I think again, we're all. It's hard to say anything new about the universe of Marvel movies because they're so picked over culturally. Yep. But it is interesting to me that we've reached a point where movies that are, in theory, like in theory, the wheelhouse for a PG thirteen blockbuster should still probably be a somewhat younger audience in theory. That's the way at least it, it was for most of my lifetime. And now we've reached a point where, yeah, a 13, 14 year old kid can definitely enjoy this movie or a younger kid. Um, but also the people who are going to enjoy it the most are people who are Gen X who are firmly in middle age. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, especially a movie like this that is a little more like they they literally made Samuel L. Jackson young, right? Yeah. Uh, it was creepy. It was like, oh, uh, what was that movie? Ted with the talking teddy bear. Yes, <laughs> he looked he looked like Ted. He looked like an animatronic Samuel L. Jo- Jackson, and it gave me the willies. Frankly, that's interesting. That yeah, but I. Uh, it was yeah. I mean, I, I I don't have much more to say about that, but I was I was fascinated. I couldn't look away. I mean, yeah, you have. Uh, were they in L.A. or San Diego? I guess they're in L.A. Right when she she lands. Um, I think they'd have to be right. Uh, I almost said San Diego because of the military connection, but yeah, I think L.A. Basically, and like it's interesting that you, that you bring up Samuel L. Jackson being de-aged because like that is exactly ninety five. That's about exactly when Pulp Fiction came out. His his still his most iconic role, right? Yeah. So it's like you're literally not only are you playing the nostalgia of comic books and pop culture, you're also de-aging Samuel L. Jackson to be uh, his character in Pulp Fiction, which is an, another layer of referential uncanniness in this movie. Um, and and by the way, I thought Samuel L. Jackson and, and Ben Mendelsohn gave Ben Mendelsohn is uh, starts off as a scroll bad guy and. Spoiler alert, becomes less bad over the course of the story as you get into the, com- the complexity. Actually, that's a funny word to use. <laughs> yeah, the moral complexities of the Captain Marvel uh, world. And, you know, actually, I-, I will I will detour there to say, in fairness, this movie does have a little bit more moral complexity than a lot of Marvel movies. So, Absolutely. fair enough. But, yeah, uh, and Mendelssohn and Jackson gave the best uh, the best performances, I think, uh, so Jackson is one of the most charming parts of the movie. I think that the painful thing for me was Jackson is trying his best. I didn't think he was phoning it in. I thought that a very iconic actor who was phoning it in was Jude Law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was, yeah. I mean, he, he was there to get paid, very obviously. And I, I'm going to get canceled for saying this. I've already been canceled several times in the course of this episode. But Brie Larson, I, I was ready to see her do some acting and – Boy, she did not do a lot of acting. She reminded me of a bad Leo DiCaprio role where when Leo is at his worst, he just kind of makes the same grimace throughout an entire movie. <laughs> and she that was basically what she was doing. I know that I keep harping on the smile. I'm not that I, it's not that I want her to smile more. It's that <laughs> Dude, gosh, you're I'm so gonna get so that now. That's awesome. I'm gonna get so you you killed me with that. No, <laughs> it's it's not even that. It's that like just her her range of emotion. I get that she's meant to be this space badass warrior, and that's fine. Like, I'm totally down for that. I am totally down for an icy, like, uh, kind of Uma Thurman and Kill Bill uh, kind of character like that. But, gosh, it, it it was the lack. I mean, the lack of chemistry. It was almost like Samuel L. Jackson was like, I don't know, her father-in-law or something, who's like trying really hard to be charming, 
and goofy, and then she's just not it's she's not having it, and not having it in a way that that worked comically. Just like it's like, gosh, do these actors not like each other, or like are they are they fighting off off camera or whatever? It's just it's just I don't know. It's true. Like improv to, yeah. is supposed to be yes and. And like she was like anytime he did something, she was definitely responding no. Like she was she was really shut off. Um I you know, it's interesting that you thought of her as the the warrior and that's what made her like she was. I think that's more accurate than my thought. I thought she was like Superman. Because she like Captain Marvel basically is a DC Superman. And what do you do with a character like that? It's completely affectless. There's no um, there's no real motivating force behind the person beyond trying to do the right thing. And it's just, you know, it's it's incredibly inhuman and not very interesting to watch. Um, it, have you thought about the amnesia of this character? Uh, I think that amnesia is always a convenient plot device, and I didn't, I didn't think about it much beyond that. What were you thinking about it? Well, okay, so, like, they go about halfway through the movie, she pieces it together enough things about her old life so that that is still that's something she can interact with but she never gets her memories back i mean we she's another alita figure where this person has had maybe two to three years of conscious memories and they're all about being some sort of ultra warrior for the bad guys and i would have liked to see more of that like if she had trouble using a fork. Yeah, I, you make a lot of great points. I think that we have seen so the two movies that have been dueling at the box office are of course Captain Marvel and the other movie we revealed not we reviewed not too long ago, which was Alita Battle Angel. And Captain Marvel has decisively won that battle. And I think Captain Marvel, to be clear, is a better movie than Alita Battle Angel. I think Pete would agree. <laughs> I was yeah, I ask. mean, you know <laughs> and they both use the device, they both have um aggressively they have aggressive superheroine characters and there's a, there's always going to be debate now about is that inherently feminist and again i i want to be clear i'm not trying to adjudicate it's not up to me to say what well, is and isn't feminist it's more just that it, the way that like gender is used in captain marvel i i didn't think that it was particularly a new way of working through any of that that's my only it's my opinion level of storytelling i think Again, to compare it to Alita, though, they both have to use – they both decide to use amnesia uh, just so we get these characters kind of – they are incredibly competent and they are tabula rasa as people. And part of what that allows you to do is it, it makes things easier on, story, on the storytellers and it gives them sort of an inherent mystery to work through, which makes – you know, which can create a kind of organic drama and can make things easier if you're writing the movie. But it also – it allows view, us as viewers to project whatever we want onto them, right? Like they become – empty vessels that are, they're like developing, they're, they're, what they're, what, insofar as they have character and personality, they're developing it through only pretty much the action that we see on screen, um, which simplifies everything, but also like it allows us to make them kind of a pure figure of myth or a pure figure of aspiration in a way that I'm very suspicious of at least. Do you see what I'm saying there? Well, I th yes, uh, I think I'd also like to point out that another another media property that used to use uh, amnesia a lot to move the plot along was Gilligan's Island. <laughs> it's not always people making a conscious choice. Like sometimes writers are just terrible. Yeah, I, I uh, not to give away too much, but I, in the course of developing my novel recently, my agent and I have decided to. Uh, have some of those moments where the character does pass out and loses time and has to piece things back together because guess what? In a complicated story, that can be very useful where 
stuff has to happen and the character is not there for it and they have to then unpack the consequences of what may have happened. That's actually like, it is, it's just sort of a classic. I mean, you could go back to the epic of Gilgamesh, you know, Gilgamesh falling asleep uh, and what happens when he's asleep is like a big part of that story. Um, Jesus, Connor, did I just accidentally burn you? I'm sorry. Bur- burn me? Ha- no, not at all. I think it's interesting because I, I think part of what I find so interesting in this podcast, talking about genre fiction, and here we're talking about, again, a very specific genre that is the most, it is, Marvel movies are both a specific genre and, of course, the most dominant storytelling form in global culture right now. Sure. Um, by far, I think. And, and you know, what, what interests me in this podcast is kind of trying to use the sort of intensive or high-minded tools of both critique and of pra- storytelling pra- uh, practice Mm-hmm. That I, you know, have been given or have tried to learn in my life, and also that then to think about to think in a gen- generous way about how they apply to things that are easy to be cynical about, like this movie. And yeah, I mean, I I am fine with amnesia. I think it just begs interesting questions about like what happens when you do kind of empty out a character like that, when you do make them into sort of an empty vessel, and the only things that they the thing that they know how to do, basically they they have two things. Both Alita and Captain Marvel have two things. They have incredible competence, especially at combat, that's instinctive and kind of hardwired into them. And then they also have this very pure childlike moral sense. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much it. And that's perhaps fine. Um, it, 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 I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of just trailing off here. I mean, well, th- that's, a good, that's a good place for me to go ahead. There's, there's sort of a mythic structure thing going on here too that, that it's like – when children play, they do what showed up in Alita Battle Angel or in in this Captain Marvel movie in that both of these characters, in addition to having, uh, you know, the, these crippling amnesic weaknesses and that sort of thing, have been imbued with a power that makes them 80 times as powerful as any piece on the board. Like, they both have godlike power compared to anybody else. And the only reason that they aren't just toppling the world and taking it over is that they're too concussed to do so. Right. And they have to piece together the, I mean, again, complexity is a tough word, especially with Belita Battle. They have to piece together <laughs> the moral the moral stakes of what's going on around them and make choices that are inevitably, you know, very noble choices. And again... That's fine. I mean, I. Oh, there's. No, I'm very on the fence. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with telling a fairy tale. Telling a fairy tale is legit, but like, it it gets a little wearying, especially like we just saw a leader battle angel, and you can make the argument that this is the same story, and that kind of sucks. Like, you don't want to see the same story again and again and again. No, and even in the even in this movie, so one reason that Ben Mendelsohn is able to give a good performance is he does start as a bad guy and becomes essentially a good guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the course of doing so, we learn he has a family. We learn, he, you know, he talks about, like, he had, at one point he basically, Captain Marvel, like, apologizes to him for all the bad things she's done to his people. And he basically says, hey, it's war. My hands are dirty, too. Which is like a small thing, but it's like this character, Ben Mendelsohn's character, acknowledges and embodies the complexity of an adult going through space, intergalactic space war, you know? Um, and it, oh, he's easily the most interesting character. Right. And, and Nick Fury, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, um, less complex. I mean, again, this is a movie that is 
built in close, created in close cooperation with the U.S. Air Force and does some shameless promotion for them. And we're not even going to get into that. If you want to, if you want to cancel this movie from a left wing point of view, all you have to say is it's a marketing vehicle for the United States Air Force. And that is, you got it. Yes, you're right. Um, <laughs> but Fury, of course, is, is in S.H.I.E.L.D. He's former military, former CIA. Uh, the, the complexity of his background is not really interrogated, but at least he has a little bit more of, of adult texture to him and to his experiences and has been through something. Again, Captain Marvel has been through a lot, which she does not remember. And that it, it just makes it again. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to be too hard on Brie Larson. I didn't think she had great performance. I'm not sure what exactly she was supposed to be performing. Do mm-hmm. you have to put that on the on the writers? You put it on the directors? You put it on everyone else involved? It's like I'd kind of like to see the script. I agree. Yeah, I mean, let, this is a good point for me to ask you. Like, as we do this podcast, we're probably going to review a good number of Marvel movies. We're definitely going to review Star Wars movies. And that means we're going to be reviewing a lot of Disney movies. These are owned yep. by Disney, of course. What do you think about Disney and its impact on modern mass cultural cinema like this? Okay. Um, I'm going to use an analogy, and it's it it may be a turnoff point because it involves electronics, but I am going somewhere, so I want you to I want you to work with me. So um there's two types of circuits. One is called a series circuit, and it's a straight line, like battery, wire, light bulb. That's a series circuit. A parallel circuit would be four batteries, 20 wires, and three light bulbs all connected by wires. And so the, 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 the parallel circuit is wasteful, wasteful as hell. You're using all sorts of extra equipment and stuff, but if anything goes wrong in a parallel circuit, it's no big deal. Because you have all these other wires and you have all these other batteries. And that is the problem with Disney. Disney has taken the vast majority of the film world and turned it into this huge series circuit where everything is them and everything is simple and everything is going along this flowing line. And they're doing it very intelligently. And they're making some very good films as a result. But... Any mistake they make is going to be magnified and crippling in the film industry because it's basically just them and Universal. And honestly, I bet within the next 10 years, it's just going to be Disney. We'll have Disney and then like three independent film companies that we all sort of half know. And all of those children's movies and all of those action movies are going to be owned by one set of guys who frankly aren't very smart. And I'm not looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Uh, and it does bear directly the storytelling here. I think one of the major complaints, like Brian Quimby brought this up last week when we had him on here to discuss The Hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came, comes up on Twitter. And it's like, it's hard for this movie, Captain Marvel, to feel consequential because you know that it fits into a broader, it's a prequel in essence to um, all kinds of stuff or all pretty much most Marvel movies that have come out or all of them because it's like, this, this movie at the end, again, spoiler, you see that Nick Fury gets the idea for the name Avengers based on Carol Danvers' old call sign when she was in the Air Force. And this is like, this is like part of an Avengers origin story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's obviously you know that a lot of these characters have to live through the story, but also, like, you know that it's just one minor node in this incredibly branching narrative universe that if you see all these movies, you're deeply immersed in. And it would be hard to track. I mean, I guess the the main flagship Avengers films 
are the ones where like there's stakes and stuff, pivotal stuff happens and characters die. And then the rest of it is just, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I want to ask you about this, if that's okay. Because like, it's one of the things I don't think about a lot with Marvel movies. And it's really important. Like how can these storytellers manage stakes in a context like this? It's unwieldy and imperious within the market, like these Marvel movies. Should they just accept the fact that they're not going to be as consequential, that it's all going to be, you know, building towards a larger whole or what should they do? Yeah, I think you have to accept, I mean, the extent to which people who are directing and writing these movies have to accept that they do not own the character of the story is staggering. It's obviously in the history of filmmaking, that's off, you know, there's always been a corporate structure in this high, it's a high overhead art. Now, I, I like this distinction a lot because as someone who writes novels, luckily writing novels is a very low overhead artistic enterprise. You can just do it if you have any way of writing anything. Um, and that, of course, is film is, of course, of the, the vast polar opposite of that, where it's incredibly high overhead, especially a Marvel movie. So of course you go into it accepting you do not own this character, but how do you, I think the question is, we talk about stakes. We talk about making these films feel consequential, making them feel like more than just a perfunctory, but perhaps fun thing that you, that you go through as a viewer. And how does that actually get achieved in the last few years in some of these movies? And I'll again use a Thor Ragnarok example. I think the question is you as a director, you have to know you will know how you have to get from A to B or let's say A to C and what the B in the middle is. And all of this will be laid out for you by the fast corporate structure of Disney. You'll know which actors and characters you're allowed to use. Uh, you'll know so much will be given to you. And I think the, the, the artfulness, all of the actual artistic, the artistic, the art that happens in here is sort of interstitial Uh within this larger architecture and it's 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 going to be about what is your directorial voice so to speak and and what are the what are the pieces of commentary that you can kind of smuggle in it and I, I'm probably doing a bad job explaining this but I think in, like in Thor Ragnarok no it's interesting well, I think in Thor Ragnarok the main thing is just uh, the director had a really had a really precise sense of the kind of humor that he wanted to do and I, I don't know if he also wrote it but there was a good collaboration there between director and writers uh, at whatever level of they knew the kind of they, they knew the kind of relationship they wanted um, Mark Ruffalo and Chris Hemsworth to have. They knew how they wanted to fit all the characters in there. They knew that the, essentially that essentially Thor Ragnarok is a movie that is all about like we know that this epic thing has to happen with Ragnarok occurring to uh, uh, what is Asgard. Uh, Thor's homeworld, and it's very dramatic, and it is it is narratively important. It does change his character. Uh, you know, Anthony Hopkins as Odin dies, and other consequential stuff in the Marvel universe happens. But I think random spoilers. Sorry, yeah, spoilers. <laughs> but it's it's been out for like a year and a half, uh, and it's on Netflix, so I don't feel bad for you. But anyway, um, where I'm going with this is just to say, like, I thought the direction, the decision that was made there was all right. There's a certain kind of comedy that I'm interested in as a director. I can practice it within this massive machinery. And I'm just going to figure out what kind of jokes I want to have here, essentially. And how do I want that to, to fit into the tensions and um, dynamics between characters? And I thought that it worked. Uh, it's, a, it's a film that has a very good, I thought, non-cynical sense of reflexivity. Whereas Captain Marvel suffers a bit from the plague of, look, it is totally fair as a storyteller to have characters be like, well, I didn't believe in space aliens until I just saw that space alien right there. So now I guess I have to believe for the purpose of the story. That's fine at one level. I think it gets to be a little bit 
uh, it gets to, it, it's a kind of goofiness that can become that can acquire a cynical feel mm-hmm. um, as it become as you overdo it. But I think Thor Ragnarok is all about what is the smart kind of reflexivity and buddy comedy that we can generate within this, and I thought that it landed very nicely. And so the point is, you as a you as an artist are it's kind of like you are dropped into this gigantic glittering edifice, almost like a video game, and your quest is to journey through it and find the very small spots that you can kind of redecorate or aesthetically render or do interesting things with, like you're playing Portal or something in, in a weird way. Um, that is that is the task, and I think it's very hard to pull off. I don't think this movie pulls it off at all. <laughs> and I think if there was a if there was a quest implicit in this for the director, it was, can I do something new with the idea of gender and feminism in this kind of movie. I don't think that a real effort was actually made to do that, which is, again, is not for me to say if this is a feminist movie or not. The point is, I would challenge anyone to tell me what, if anything, was at all new about the way that it explored the idea of a female superheroine. I just didn't see anything that felt remotely innovative. Uh, and I, I'd use the Black Panther comparison and say, if, if Black Panther was a really interesting attempt to do kind of an Afrofuturism thing and use racial identity and history. I'm so yeah. happy you're using that terminology, <laughs> by the way. Well, yeah, we talked about this with Octavia Butler in our episode. It was out earlier this week, folks, if you want to check that out. But that, that point is, whether you love or hate Black Panther, there is a very informed and a very intentional effort to make it into a distinctive film within the broader Marvel genre. Um, you can say that it succeeds or fails. You can call it cynical. People have definitely done that with it. I, I liked it just fine. Um, I didn't see any real effort in Captain Marvel at all to make it a new take on uh, the femininity of a superhero and what that might mean. And that's fine. That It's not for me to say, like, I'm, I'm reacting to this as a cishet white guy, obviously. But it just felt surprisingly bland and predictable. And I didn't think that that, that kind of that kind of brave questing from artists within this immense intonating edifice of Marvel movies. I didn't see any of that happening. Mm-hmm. Is that a good summary? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a level of, hey, it's about a chick, therefore it's feminist, which is, I mean, it was, it was pretty off-putting, to be honest. Um, I, in watching the Marvel movies, and God, I, I'm sure I've missed one, but I've seen a lot of them at this point. Um, they've learned one trick, to raise the stakes. And it's Joss Whedon's trick. Like, I know Joss Whedon is stunningly unpopular with our audience, but he is competent. And he early on figured out that there's one thing you can do that'll make everybody shed their disbelief and embrace the reality of of the piece you're putting out there. And that is to randomly murder someone that they have stakes in. And so that's one of the reasons that these Marvel movies very do very well. It's like, don't look at the introductory ones where you don't know anybody because there's no point in murdering someone there. But any sequel, they pull the Whedon trick and they look for somebody you care about and blow their brains all over the screen. And that creates a connection. And it's kind of unnerving to me because it's it's effective. Like you definitely get drawn to the movie when they do that. But wow, what a cynical trick to play on an audience. And just watching everybody buy into it again and again makes me unhappy. That is a very interesting point. And you're going to have to remind me, did that, did that happen in this movie? 
No, because we didn't know any of the characters. The only character we knew, well, we knew Nick Fury, who they had to keep around, uh, because otherwise the timeline would go mad. And then we had the head of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you couldn't kill him either because he's got a series in 20 years. <laughs> there, there, there was no one to murder. Right. And, yeah, I mean, the action, like, so much of this is, all right, we're going to introduce Hala, the home of the Kree civilization, which is this empire run by an AI, mm-hmm. which is a creepy and kind of interesting concept. And the Kree consider themselves a race of heroes. It turns out, again, spoilers, they're kind of the bad guys, despite starting off as the seeming good guys. Um, and it's, that is fine and interesting. It, 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 we don't necessarily inherently care. Um, I, I just have so little to say about it. Like, it's like, I'm, I'm grasping to like say anything critical about it. That is just like, it's, it's there. I mean, this was a very, I, I mean, talk about just kind of a workman like, like, like I, I guess the, the feeling I had as a writer watching this was just maybe these, Maybe the uh, writers and the co-directors, whose names I forget, um, I think that I think that there were three screenwriters that were credited, uh, with, uh, uh, including both directors or one of the directors, and the directors was a male-female pair, I believe. Yeah, you know, it um, reflects poorly on me, but I didn't even bother to look at who directed or wrote this. I was just like, I eh. can look it up right now, but it, it, whatever, folks, you have Wikipedia if you're curious. But like, <laughs> it it just it, the point the point that what disappointed me. Mm-hmm. was the way that I watch these movies once again. And I'm, I don't go to every Marvel movie. For this podcast, I'm going to be going to more of them than I have in the past. All of I them, I do go dude. to the Star Wars movies. Yeah, we're going to go to all of them, whatever. <laughs> but like, it, what I was looking for, to go back to what I was saying, that I think is so important to me, is I want to see where is it that someone who has been building their career over a decade or 15 years, at working feverishly, working as a production assistant, Whatever they've had to do to scrap to get to the point where they're being allowed to direct and write a Marvel movie, which I, I always try to imagine their backstory and how hard they've worked, or you know what what secret society they're a part of, whatever <laughs> path they took to get there. It's like it's like all right, you're there, and you know you have the weight of this this immense corporation and all this money behind. You know that there's a very limited range of what you can do as an artist, and I want to see if I can spot. Where is it that you got to play around and actually be an artist? Where did you get to actually create? And there was pretty much not a single moment in this movie. Weirdly, it felt weird. There was almost not, there was felt like there was not a single moment where I could be like, yes, this is an artist who's waited 12 years to do this and they're getting to do something that, that feels, does not feel like it was written by a hundred people, faceless people in, in neighboring cubicles at Marvel headquarters, right? It's like, I'm a, f- I'm afraid it was like the pinball machine or something. Yeah, something. It would it would be something dumb like that where it's like we're gonna go already player one on you and we're gonna get to make a reference that we like. Like we're gonna have Carol Danvers holding up the right stuff when she falls into Blockbuster or. We're, oh, I noticed that too. Holy crap, that made me angry. Well, and one of the cool things about directing a Marvel movie is if you have music, for instance, that you want, Disney will. I mean, Disney will buy it for you. Like, yeah. when you're making an indie movie, you can't buy a Nirvana song. Uh, when you're making Captain Marvel, guess what? You can buy the rights to a Nirvana song. As a director, that's probably really, really exciting. Yeah. Um, can, can, I, I, can I go sideways really quick and we'll go right back? When you were growing up, did you watch the show WKRP in Cincinnati? I did not. Okay, it is, it's about a radio station, and one of the things that made it so cool is that they were playing music that was on the radio right then, and they related the plot to what was going on. And if you go and you watch them now, they had to pull the music out. Oh, wow. 
It's horrific. Like, they'll put something that sounds vaguely rock and rolly in the background or whatever. And I suppose you can go to YouTube and find a bad copy with the real music in. But it is unbearable. And it's like the fact that Disney has the muscle power to go in and keep those songs in there is a big deal. Because if you take them out, it's noticeable. It's really bad. I mean, again, Thor Ragnarok works. And one reason it works is that Disney was able to pay, iconically, they were able to pay Led Zeppelin, I'm sure, literally millions of dollars so they could use Immigrant Song. Oh, sure. <laughs> and it's like, that is so cool to have Thor... Uh, the iconic, you know, Norse superhero fighting to immigrant song is like, like <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And this is how you know I'm a Philistine because I truly believe one of my most deeply held beliefs that I think is true about The Sopranos, for instance. Um, there's so many great things about The Sopranos, obviously, perhaps the greatest TV show ever. One of my favorite things about it, though, is they were able to use extremely on the nose iconic mu- music at key moments. And for me, in the medium of anything on screen, that is so incredibly valuable to be able to just nail the right sort of vaguely familiar or even unfamiliar, but just to nail the exact right song to bring into your your story is so cool. I actually, I, I, here's a, this is, this is not, this won't actually spoil the plot, but I, I sent my manuscript of, you know, my novel to my, a, a, a recent draft of it to my agent. And as a joke at the end, after the end, I put in brackets, uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart by Joy Division Plays. <laughs> because, and of course, that's not actually happening in, in the manuscript of a novel. It's just a joke by me. But it's like, I'm a Philistine at the level of if you can do those things for me, you know, I will, you know, I will love what you're doing so, so much more. And Marvel can do that. So that's that's one cool thing about this giant monolithic corporate uh, storytelling form that that works on my lizard brain. If that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's uh, I. I wasn't even going to talk about this because it's it's just an interest of mine, but it's it's like an Aristotle thing. Like Aristotle used to love like labeling things and putting them in separate boxes so they couldn't touch. So like, you know, you look at sculpture and you're not looking at the color it's painted, but like a movie isn't a disparate piece of art like that. It's a combination of things. And that music matters. The lighting matters. The acting matters. And the idea that a group like Disney can go in and pour like $400 million on making sure that every bloody thing is picture perfect, I mean, it makes an impressive piece of cinema, even if you don't like the movie. Yeah, and and like you just mentioned kind of the CGI and the visual effects thing. I wonder, kind of between this movie and Alito, which is obviously like even another level of CGI made for IMAX and stuff. Yeah. And then going back to our conversation with Brian Quinby uh, about the Hidden, a sort of 80s practical effects movie. The more that I talk about this and think about this, I wonder if we're going to see a because partly because of the dominance of Disney. I wonder if one way that other fairly large studios will try to compete with them is they're going to say, "All right, we're going to have an action." epic that we're going to release in the summer and you know what god damn it it's not going to have cgi it's going to be practical effects and say like we're going to do a sci-fi epic with practical effects that that could be a movement that could definitely happen um to kind of counter it'd be wonderful kind of yeah to kind of counter the perfection of you know star wars and marvel movies i think that'd be awesome i would encourage studios to do that uh it would be a really neat way to kind of upend the game here a little bit um i want to ask you pete uh well, I, I guess there's, before I ask you about the comic books, I actually want to bring something up that I thought we'd be talking about and we haven't. Yeah. Do you even think that it's worth addressing the kind of like 
obvious, like, Im- you know, imperialist propaganda of the Air Force in this movie. I feel like it's so obvious that it's not even worth discussing. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the other thing about it is I'm not sure that, um, like, if if we stop the Air Force from advertising for war, we might not have any, right? <laughs> right. If the Air Force isn't allowed to work with Marvel, they'll they'll just go away. Right. Exactly. It's like, we got them. I, I just, like... The the critique of the military going in and uh, trumpeting its own importance in the public sphere, it's, it's a discussion we should have, but, like, I think this is the wrong thread to pull. Like, I, I think we need to try and figure out a way to, like, what, what role should the military have and where does it tie into what we want to do as a culture? And I just like me screaming about how it's weird to do it in the middle of a sci-fi film just like makes me look like a dork. It's not going to affect anything at all. So like if I tried, I could find my anger and we could have a lot of talk about this, but like, man, I'm just weary about it. Like I I don't see how we're going to change anything and I'm sorry to be gloomy, but it's just how it is. Yeah, I have very little to say about it. I I actually, I thought the Air Force stuff might be more obtrusive than it was. Uh, It, it, if you're, if you are, you know, on the fence about how you feel about the Air Force or the U.S. military (laughs) generally, and you watch this movie and you come away thinking, I now love the Air Force, then your, your brain is, uh, probably not very powerful to be frank because it's not a I would not say it's a particularly insidious or clever pitch for any of it it's just like Air Force cool pilots lady pilots uh logo and Captain Marvel sinks her suit when she can choose the color of it to the colors of an Air Force logo that's little girl is wearing the little girl is wearing it because her mom used to be an Air Force pilot and that is all of course very cynical and silly and perhaps insidious but it just didn't it didn't make a very strong impression with me on the other than making me roll my eyes to be frank no perhaps nobody yeah. is nobody is joining the military on the basis of this film nobody I yeah I kind of feel that way too I mean I, now let me ask you this uh you you are a comic book guy in a way that I am not um sure not to imply that you are the Simpsons comic book guy the way that I phrase that but uh <laughs> Um, I you used to read Captain I Marvel. Talk like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> That's man. Pretty good, actually. That's pretty good. <laughs> uh, you used to read Captain Marvel as a kid. Yeah. And you know, how did this movie relate to to that? Oh well, um, it was interesting actually because, um, like a lot of things, like the, the Captain Marvel character, I remembered Captain. I I remembered her as being more complex which is a startling statement when you realize you're thinking about six-year-old me sneaking into my brother's room and reading his comics with a flashlight while he was out. Like, if I, if if that set the stage for something more complicated than what I saw on the screen, holy crap. Uh, the other thing is they did a pretty decent job with the villains, the Kree and the Skrull, because the thing that makes them so interesting is, uh, let me think of a good analogy. Oh, God, I have to use the analogy everybody uses. It's like Germany and the Soviet Union. Like, they are not good and evil. They are different villains of a kind that you can pit against each other under differing circumstances. So the the Kree are basically a mercantile empire that are perfectly happy to try and figure out a way to blow up our planet for their own purposes. But fundamentally, the Kree are going to roll over them. And, like, they're not uh, 
uh, they, you know, they, they're, they're a mercantile empire, not a military empire. So depending on circumstances, which of those do you want to have as your villain? It's pretty easy to pick one and roll with it. And that's one of the things that will make this sort of arc of Marvel interesting going forward is that the the villains of this movie are not going to be the villains of every movie. They're going to flip that back and forth and back and forth. I'm I'm convinced. Um inter- I, wait. did I answer the question? No, you you <laughs> did. I'm trying I'm trying to understand a little bit here. Uh sure. which cuz I, I think you kind of you made you made an interesting point that in the comic books were the Kree and the Skrull on more even footing in terms of power because in this movie the Kree have this ascendant technologically advanced empire and the scroll we find out ultimately are like refugees fighting an insurgency campaign is that is that different in the comic books that you're saying yeah well and it it's like if realize that they've been written over decades and decades so it depends on who's writing it um canon as i remember it is that the scroll created the cree like the cree were primitive natives on a planet the scroll showed up and showed them how to make stuff and then they take off and they come back and the Kree have equal technology to them or worse and are like, you know what? We've changed our mind. We're going to kill you all. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the scroll were treated as harmless refugees in this. I would be stunned if that continues in certain future films. I think that's a setup. That's interesting. Okay. But uh, Yeah. That might make this a little more interesting to have like the complexity there because yeah this was definitely we have good guys and bad guys and like uh, Captain Marvel is more of an everybody side yeah I mean if there's one if there's a nice thing to say about this movie it's that um, for all of the imperialism in the synergistic Air Force marketing that's inherent to it it is a movie in which the character learns that her allegiance to a vast empire is wrong and that she should help the refugees. And, um, that's, you know, I, I'm not going to make fun of that. I think that's like, it was, that was the most interesting part of the story. Um, plenty of Marvel movies and other genre blockbusters do not have that much more complexity. The bad guy is the bad guy and they say the bad guy. This one at least switched it up. Um, and that's kind of the nicest thing I can say about it. So probably a good spot to end. What do you think, Pete? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're good to go. Um, All right. Well, thanks, everyone. (laughs) Awesome.